All right, you may want to turn to chapter 37 of Genesis because we will be looking at some passages there. And also you might want to put a mark, a bookmark in 1 Samuel chapter 27 because we're going to look at the first seven verses there and also in part of our study tonight. But we've looked at the character of Joseph and really that's the, the topic of the whole study on, on Joseph is his character. But we kind of looked at that uh, in the introduction last week or the week before we looked at the privilege of Joseph. And now we're going to look at the persecution of Joseph. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 11, 12, 11 and 12, Paul said, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And he said, out of, out of them all, I like that, out of them all. He didn't just say some of them, out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will will, not maybe, will suffer persecution. Now, Paul said two things. He used two words in, in that passage, persecutions and afflictions. Now, afflictions are problems other than persecution. Afflictions may include sickness or other adverse circumstances which would hinder the work of the Lord. And we know that Satan sends plenty of these problems as well. The dedicated believer is a special target of persecution because purity, integrity, and holy, holy character invites persecution. You are asking for it, in a sense. Faith invites persecution. But Jesus had something encouraging to say about being persecuted in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. He said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Joseph's godly life brought him some valuable and wonderful privileges, but it also brought him persecution and suffering. Now, <clears throat> we like the privileges, but we don't like so much the persecution that comes with it. But as long as we're in this world, we are going to find out that heavenly favor with God, the privileges that we receive, we seldom get with those privileges uh, or without, uh, uh, without receiving with them animosity and hostility. Godliness, godliness brings about persecution. Why? Because it's an attack on Satan. It's an attack on his evil work, and that upsets him, and it upsets him immediately, and it causes him to react with force. When Joseph went to Shechem to check on his brothers at his father's request, remember, it was the perfect opportunity for his brothers to do him harm because he was far away from home. That would also make the situation perfect for doing whatever they wanted to do to Joseph without any interference from their father. You know, and it seems pretty common that the farther we get away from home, the worse our behavior gets. Maybe it's because the farther we are from, the, from home, the less restrictions there are. The, the, the harder it is to, for, for our folks or, or whoever it may be to check up on us. But we need to always keep in mind that we're never far away from the all-seeing eye of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, 7, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? He's everywhere. He sees everything. And the day is going to come when we are going to be judged according to our works. 
Now, the bad guys who brought the persecution to Joseph was his own flesh and blood. It was his brothers. They were an evil bunch. Now, where does evil begin? What Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. He said all these evil things come from within and defile a man. And that's why Solomon said in Proverbs 23, guard your heart, 23, 4, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it, that is the heart, is the wellspring of life. If we pollute that wellspring, the pollution will spread and before long, hidden appetites, those hidden cravings, those hidden desires, they will become open sins and it it will become public shame. Whatever the heart loves, the ears will hear and the eyes will see. And you know, remember, you know, when, when, when our children were small, it, it didn't matter where we were going, they could always find and point out the ice cream store or the toy store. The Bible warns us to avoid a double heart. You know, like children, they know those that what, what they like and what they see, it, it, they, 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 they point it out. And that's the same thing, the hidden appetites in the hearts, the things that we like and that we see, we find them without any problem. And as I said, the Bible warns us to avoid a double heart. It it warns us to avoid a hard heart, a proud heart, an unbelieving heart, a cold heart, an unclean heart. And that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 139.3, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my heart. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. A man's character is based on what he says, isn't based on what he says or what he declares himself to be. But what his heart thinks, which is discovered by his actions, we know what he thinks by what he does, you know, and by which he's going to be judged and not what he says he is. It's by what we do according to our works, God said. This was the case with Joseph's brothers. Their persecution of Joseph started in Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph's brothers started to hate and envy him. Look at verses uh, 4, 6, and 8 of chapter 37. And verse 4 says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. Look at verse 6. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. And there were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And your sheaf stood all around and bowed to my heart. And notice the verse 8. And his brother said, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. So we read that, Jesus's brother, that, that Joseph's brother hated him. And look at verse 11. And his brothers envied him. Notice. So he's hated and he's envied by his brothers. And because of these evil thoughts of his brothers, it's no surprise to see the brothers now conspiring together to do him harm when he gets to Dothan to check up on him. So as we see what Joseph goes through and how it all came to pass, let's learn from this. This is a good warning about our own thoughts. In order to get victory over our evil thoughts, we need to put on the helmet of salvation. Because Satan wants to attack the mind. 
That's the way he defeated Eve. And the helmet, in Ephesians chapter 6, speaking of the armor of God, the helmet refers to the mind controlled by God. And it's too bad that many Christians have the idea that the intellect is not important. When reality, it plays a very important part in Christian growth and service and victory. When God controls the mind, Satan cannot lead the believer astray. The Christian who studies his Bible and learns the meaning of Bible doctrines is not going to be led astray very easily. We read also about Peter in Mark chapter 14, verse 70, uh, 72. It says, a second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And it says, and when he thought about it, he wept. You see, your feelings are directly associated with your thoughts. And if we allow our thoughts to continue, pretty soon they're going to take control and they're going to bring great harm to our lives and to others. We see that in Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, when Cain, you know, ended up killing his brother. We read there that the Lord did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. And God begins to question Cain. He says, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain, why do you look so dejected? He said, you'll be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Notice the warning God gave Cain. He said, sin is crouching at the door. It's eager to control you, but you must subdue it and you be its master. God was warning Cain. He was making Cain think about what he was doing. Why do you look so dejected? Why are you so angry? Hoping that he would examine himself, search his heart and say, you know what? I, I'm, I'm messed up. I'm wrong. I need to confess. But he didn't. He allowed the evil thoughts to continue and to go on. And he eventually killed his brother. We will never get the victory over evil in our life if we don't stop our evil thoughts. And that's what was going on with Joseph's brothers. And because none of the brothers made it a point to stop their evil thinking, they said evil things. They hated him, they said. They envied them. So when they saw Joseph, they started really ridiculing him. And they started by mocking God's word that had been revealed to him in verse 19 here of chapter 37. The brother said, look, here comes the dreamer. And you'll soon learn that if you speak the word, you will soon be ridiculed. Jesus said in John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. You see, people often try to discredit the Bible. You know, they say you can't trust it. Man wrote it. It's just a bunch of man-made fairy tales. And here, Joseph's brothers, in their mockery, said, we shall see what will become of his dreams in verse 20. Yeah, we'll see how this works out. We'll see if those dreams he told us about will come to pass. But when it comes to man's word, it's like Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. New Living Translation, it reads, The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stays on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It's the same with my word. I send it out and it will always produce fruit it will accomplish all i want it to and it will prosper everywhere i send it 
Now Joseph's brother's evil thoughts turned into evil deeds. And as a result, his brothers became cruel and they became calloused. I want to read now from uh, in, uh, Genesis chapter 37 from verse 18 to 36 because you will see how their callousness and their cruelty, cruelty progressed uh, uh, on in, 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 in wickedness. Let's begin with uh, verse 18. It says, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came, that is when the brothers saw uh, Joseph coming from afar away, and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. So notice they start now when they see him, they're plotting to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of, uh, out on, of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, that is, his coat of many colors, that was on him. Then they took him and they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Well, that was nice of them. Verse 25... And they sat down. No, look what they did. After, they sat down and they ate a meal after throwing their brother into a pit. Then, and, and again, I, I, you see the progress of this wickedness as those evil thoughts begin to come into evil actions. It says in, in verse 25, And then they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, hey, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Notice, what profit is there? Hey, let's, let's make some money out of this deal. Verse, 20, verse uh, 27, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened, so they agreed to what he came up with, his idea. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up out uh, up and, and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes, which is a sign of mourning and distress. And he turned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Reuben saying, Where am I going to go? I can't go back to my father. Verse 31, So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the ghost and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to the father and they said, we have found this. Notice the evil lie now that they're telling dad. We found this. Do you know whether or not it's your son's tunic? He made it for his son. He's not, you know, they're, they're playing the part. Do you, do you know if this is Joseph's coat? Verse 30, and, they, and he recognized and he said, it is my son's tunic and a wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. 
And now the Midianites had sold him in, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. It went from seeing him to conspiring to kill him and then threw him in a pit, took his coat, killed a goat, smeared it with blood, took it back to the father, lied about, you know, where Joseph is that he got killed by an animal. So we see the progression of evil when it's not taken care of. You see, when you study this section of Scripture, you can see how one sin leads to another unless you confess your sin to God and you forsake your sin. In 1 John 1, 9, we read, When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because sooner or later, sin will end up lying uh, and, and you, sin will, will again, lie and, and you'll try to cover up those sins. And we're going to look at a few examples exactly of what's going on here. Remember David. He tried lying, hoping to cover his unholy behavior with, when he lied to, to Ahimelech. Remember, he, he made himself, he made Ahimelech to believe that, that he was on a secret mission from King Saul. And he, he lied to him. He wasn't. And then in 1 Samuel 21, because David was afraid of King Achish, David pretended to be insane. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 8 through 12, it says, David and his men raided the, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, people who had lived near Shur toward the land of Egypt. David killed everyone there. And when he got back home, King Achish asked David, where did you make your raid today? David would reply, against the south of Judah, the Jeremalites, and the Kenites. No one was left alive to come to Gath and tell where he had really been. See, David had, had, had you know, run away from serving the Lord. He was working now for, for an enemy king. And the enemy king gave him some territory to take over. And, it's, and so when he questioned David, hey, where did you go? Where did you raid today? Well, David killed everybody there because then those, they, they, couldn't tell, they couldn't tell King Achish what happened. So he says, oh, I went to south of Judah and the Jeremites and the Kenites. And it says that nobody was left alive to Gath, to come to Gath and tell him where he had really been. In 2 Kings chapter 5, Gehazi lied to Elisha about where he had been. He was trying to cover up his covetousness. After David's sin with Bathsheba, and she tells David that she's pregnant, now we see to see his uh, evil mind and his, his evil deeds come into action. He begins to lie and commit evil deeds in an effort to cover up his sin. He starts out by sending for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And he, and, and he tells Uriah to, why don't you come home, you know, take a few days off from the war and spend some time at home, you know, knowing that he would, you know, spend some time in intimacy with his wife. You know, and he'd sleep with her and everybody would think that when she got pregnant, the baby would be theirs. Problem solved. But Uriah was a man of integrity, and he wouldn't go home. He wouldn't sleep in his house, you know, with, with his fellow soldiers who were fighting the war. So David has to, you know, think, have another plan. So David now invites Uriah for dinner and to have some drinks, hoping to get him drunk. And then he sends him home to stay with his wife. That didn't work either. So then David resorted to the, the ultimate evil. He had his general send Uriah to the front lines of the heat of the battle where he would surely be killed. And he was. David actually, in that, in that sense, he murdered Uriah to cover up his evil sin. 
Then David married Bathsheba, thinking, okay, it's, you know, his husband, her husband's out of the way. I can marry her now, and everything's going to work out. Everybody's going to think the baby, is, it belongs to her and I. But the baby shortly died after birth. So this deception that we see going on by Joseph's brother is a powerful lesson. And these examples that we saw, it's a powerful lesson on sowing and reaping. Because some years later, Jacob had done some deceiving himself in Genesis 27. Jacob lied to his father about his brother, Esau, Isaac's favorite son. Jacob used Esau's clothes pretending to be Esau when he received his brother's birthright by deception. He killed some goats to cover his arms to appear to be his brother who had hairy arms. And then years later, now years later here, Jacob is reaping what he sowed. In Genesis 27, verse 31 and 32, Jacob's sons lied to him. They lied about his favorite son. They used a coat to help their deception and killed goats to help their deception. I'm sorry, in Genesis 37 here. Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Joseph was the main victim of his brother's cruel persecution. It all started with Joseph. But the persecution of Joseph, it also spilled over to others. Joseph suffered a lot because of his persecution. But you know what? So did his father and his brothers. Joseph's evil brothers took the coat of many colors off of Joseph. They threw him in a pit, and then they sold him to the Midianites. Joseph's father suffered when his sons did that, when his sons lied to him about what happened to Joseph, and when he showed him his coat that they they covered with blood. And Jacob was overcome with grief. Verse 35 here says, notice, his family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And for 25 years, Jacob's sorrow was heavy on his heart because of the loss of his favorite son. And again, because they persecuted Joseph and they lied about Joseph. Notice that persecution against Joseph is also affecting now his father many years later. It would be 22 years later before Jacob would ever see his son again when he went to Egypt. Even though everybody would certainly feel sorry for Jacob. And they'd feel bad for Jacob in his great sufferings. Yet the hopelessness in his suffering, that is still a warning to us tonight about uncalled for depressing news. You see, persecution isn't only difficult persecution. All right, it's not only difficult, it's also deceptive. Persecution isn't only persecution by itself, it's also deceptive. We have to be careful so that it doesn't deceive us into thinking there's no hope. Because you see, we can be persecuted and we can experience things in our life to the point where, you know, we feel there's no hope. And that's what Jacob's father was. He said, my son is gone forever. I will never see him again. This deception of his sons caused him to have no hope and that's what the satan wants to use when he wants to deceive us to tell us you have no hope and what happens is we give up all hope and we refuse to be comforted as it says here about about jacob you know all the family came together they tried to comfort him and said there's no way he could be comforted turn with me now to uh first samuel chapter 27 verse 1 
chapter 27, beginning with verse 1, 1 Samuel. Let's read verse 1. It says, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Let's look at that first verse. Notice, David was so concerned, so worried about what was happening to him because of Saul's persecution. David is, notice, it says, David said in his heart, he began to reason within himself. This is, this is a humanistic viewpoint. David said in his heart, humanistic viewpoint. He says, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. This, he says, notice, there is nothing better for me. So he begins to talk to himself in his heart, humanistic viewpoint. And he figures out, you know what? I'm going to perish someday by the hand of Saul. So he figures there's nothing better for me to do. This is pessimistic reasoning. He says there's nothing better for me to do than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me. In other words, Saul will give up chasing me if I run off to the land of the Philistines. This is rationalistic logic. He says he won't seek me anymore in any part of Israel so I shall escape out of his hand. Notice he's... He's speaking in his own heart. He's talking with himself, and he's trying to figure out how I'm going to die one day. Saul's going to kill me if I don't do something. And he says, the best thing for me to do is to run off to the land of the Philistines. Remember where the, where the land of the Philistines is? They were the great enemy of God. So he's going to run off to enemy territory. And he says, in thinking and doing that, his Saul's not going to chase me anymore. He's not going to bother bother me anymore. He's not going to seek me anymore. He says, so I will escape out of his hand. Look where his humanistic viewpoint and and his pessimistic reasoning and his rationalistic logic took him. Look at verses two through seven. Then David arose and he went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So he runs to a, a, a heathen enemy king in Gath. Remember, who was it was that was in Gath that David fought? Goliath. He ran off to enemy territory. God didn't tell him to go. But you see, because he was feeling so pressured by his situation that he took off running out of the will of God, thinking it was going to solve all of his problems when it really made them worse. Verse 3, so David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives. Notice he caused these godly men of integrity who stuck by David and his family to run off into enemy territory. So David's, David's humanistic viewpoint and his pessimistic reasoning and his rationalistic logic caused his own family to move into enemy territory. And it said in verse 4, And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. 
Then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town. Notice in the country. No, he says, just give me a little place where I can hide out and be with my family. And so he's asking the enemy king to just, you know, help him out here and give him this land. Now, David, uh, Solomon, I'm sorry, um, Saul did stop chasing him. But again, it didn't solve his problem. Again, he said, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Notice, he tells this enemy king, this, this Philistine, he says, why should your servant? Now he's calling himself the enemy's servant. So Achish gave David Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. In 1 Samuel, 7, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27, David had been a fugitive for about seven years when he decided to run off to Gath. He'd been running for seven years. He's saying again in, in 1 Samuel 27, 1, he says, there's nothing better for me to do. He says, you know, someday Saul's going to kill me. He says, but if I run off, he says, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll, it'll be the best thing for me. So after seven years of running, he comes to this, this, this so-called solution. He runs off to Gath. But the idea of leaving Israel had probably already been in his mind. We see that in chapter 26, verse 19. But David had every reason to stay in the land where he was and not run off. And to continue to trust in God for his protection and to provide for him. After all, he was the anointed king of Israel. He knew that eventually God would give him the throne. But he allowed his, his persecution, he allowed this, this, thing, this persecution to deceive him. He said, you know, God told him, you're going to be King David. He just needed to stay there and, and wait this thing out. He was anointed the King of Israel. He knew that he would be given the throne. Even Abigail, remember Nabal's uh, uh, wife? She assured him of this in, in chapter 25, verses 27 through 31. And even Saul admitted that, David, you would one day eventually triumph in 1 Samuel 26, 25. Saul did not keep one of his promises to leave David alone. And the constant flattery of the liars that were in Saul's inner circle encouraged King Saul to keep on hunting David down like a dog. So living this kind of life of wilderness, running with his life, running for his life, Every day, it was starting to depress David. Here now he has two wives and he has 600 men to take care of. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, it said, David felt there is but a step between me and death. He wrote in Psalm, 1, Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? And that's what he did there in 1 Samuel chapter 27 when he said, I said within my heart. He said, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? You can hear the despair in this psalm when he wrote that. But in about three years after he had run off to Gath to live in the Philistine land, in about three years, David's exile would come to an end. His running would, have, it would stop. He would be ruling the people of Judah in Hebron, but he had no way of knowing this. You see, it takes both faith and patient endurance to receive what God has promised. And David seemed to be wavering in both of those essentials, faith and patience. 
David needed the faith and the courage that he expressed in Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. He said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. You know, we look at that and we say, David, man, you should have hung on just a little bit longer. You know, you, you, you had all of this going for you. You know, God anointed you king. Abigail said you were going to be king. Saul said eventually you're going to take the throne. It was, it was all written out for you, David. But before we get down on David, we need to look back at times and remember those times when we've been there and done that. And this scene here with David reminds us of a similar situation in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ when he faced the cross. In John 12, verse 27 through 28, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus had the Father's glory uppermost in his heart while David on the other hand was concerned mostly for his own safety and his own comfort and yet God was using those difficulties that David was experiencing in his life to train him to make him a man of God and to prepare him for the throne but now he decided here in 1 Samuel 27 to take matters into his own hand to go his own way and to solve his problems himself And when we try to do that, we just end up making things worse. You see, we have to be careful not to give in to discouragement as we see David here. And again, it's easy to say that. But when we're in the thick of things, it's difficult. But again, that's where that faith and and patience comes in. Moses was discouraged over his heavy workload, and he wanted to die. Numbers 11, 15. Elijah ran from his place of duty, remember, and he crawled into a cave. He said, Lord, I've had it. I, I want to die because of his fear and discouragement in 1 Kings 19. Because they were looking at their circumstances. And when we look at our circumstances, instead of looking at our God, we will lose faith. We will lose patience. And we'll lose courage. And the enemy will get the victory. We must do as Proverbs 3, 5 said, when Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And that's what David had done. He said, I I began to speak within my heart. And we need to remember Psalm 31, 15, where the psalmist said, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. So you see, Joseph wasn't the only one who suffered persecution. The ones who uh, persecuted him also suffered from what they did to Joseph. They suffered from their own doings. Joseph suffered years of cruelty. Joseph's father, Jacob, suffered many years of heartache. But so did Joseph's brothers. They had suffered years of guilt because of what they did to Joseph. Even 20 years later, after what they did to Joseph, they still couldn't shake the guilt. Because when they finally got to Egypt, they said to each other in Genesis 42, 21, we are truly guilty about our brother because we saw the distress and anguish of his soul when he begged us to let him go and we would not listen. So this distress and difficulty has come upon us. 
You see, guilt is a terrible, terrible tormentor. And it doesn't matter where the guilt comes from. The stress of the guilt itself can have a serious effect on, all, on, on people in different ways. While mo- most psychologists, or, or most, it's mostly psychological, while mostly psychological, it can affect you physically. It can, it can cause insomnia, stress, a loss of appetite, an overall just gloomy you know, feeling, depression. It can make you physically sick, even suicide, because they can't live with themselves over the guilt. And you see, if that guilt is not taken care of with the blood of Jesus Christ, it can lead people to suicide. Psychologists and other worldly counselors, they don't understand that. They don't understand that sin drives people to hopelessness and despair and eventually death if that sin problem is not dealt with properly. Guilt over sin is a terrible and heavy burden to carry. The human mind cannot deal with it for very long. And the only remedy is to to come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Remember Judas Iscariot? He didn't do that. Judas did not seek divine help for his sin, but he turned to human solutions for his problem. Judah, I'm sorry, Judas, through his humanistic viewpoint and his pessimistic reasoning and his rationalistic logic, the only solution that Judas came up with was suicide. Again, it was the progression of undealt with sin. And people think that suicide is the answer. That it will all be over if I just do myself in. Suicide doesn't solve problems. It only makes them worse and permanent. In hanging himself, Judas went from the frying pan literally into the fire. The eminent American psychiatrist Carl Menninger called hope the major weapon against the suicide impulse. See, if you have no hope, you have no expectation. What's there to expect for the, in the future if you have no hope? So in closing, how the persecuted suffers, how the persecutors uh, suffered, all right? The persecuted suffers, the persecutors suffer, and how the sinners suffer. We need to think about this truth more and more when we are tempted to sin. And remember, remember, sin will take you further than you are willing to go. And it'll cost you more than you are willing to pay. But Satan, Satan never tells you that. You know, he's a liar. And he just tells you how great things are going to be and how wonderful life is going to be. And this is what you need. This is what's going to make you happy. But he never tells you the consequences of the sin. You can choose your choice, but you can't choose your consequences. And we need to remember that. Satan is a liar and he's a deceiver. That's why it's so important that we know the word of God. We stand upon the word of God. So that we don't take counsel within our own heart. Come up with our own solutions. And then take off on them. And then end up in enemy territory. David ended up staying in Gath for almost a year and a half. 
God didn't tell him to go. This was his own idea as a result of his own thinking, his own working out his problems himself. And it just created a a, a bigger mess for him. So we need to, to be patient and we need to be faithful or stand in faith to the promises that God gives us. The psalmist said that God delivered him out of all of his tribulation. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for Joseph's uh, example, Lord, as we'll see as we go further on. But we, we see the progression of sin, Father. We see how far down it takes us, Lord. Father, help us to stand. Stand patient. To stand upon the faith of your word, Lord. Father, help us to look to you for all of our difficulties, God. Father, whether we're persecuted, whether we experience afflictions, which are things other than persecution, Lord, and the things that Satan wants to throw at us as well, Lord. Again, Lord, help us to just stand steady and to not waver, as Hebrews says about Abraham, who who wavered not at the promises. And because of faith and patience, He received the promises of God. It may not come as quickly as we'd like, but it will come. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises, of which none have ever failed, nor will they. So, Lord, we thank you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.